Hello and welcome to the False Nines podcast. I am your host, Adam Goffin. Zach Pensack, on vacation this week. Not here. I was gone last time out. He's gone this time out. We may end up recording a podcast together at some point, but not for a while. Listeners, I have a fantastic guest host with me this week, though. Um, great friend of mine. Over 20 years now, we've known each other uh, since the crazy days of university in Swansea in South Wales. My good friend, Richard Smith. How are you doing today, Rich? I'm good. Thanks, Adam. How are you? I'm doing fantastic. Thanks for jumping in at the last minute and helping out. I really do appreciate it. That's all right. Not a problem. Happy to help. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about you, Rich. Um, obviously, you have um, lived in the UK for pretty much, I think, your whole life now, traveled around a little bit. So a keen fan of English football and um, knowledgeable on the lower leagues as well as the Premier League, I'd say, right? Yeah, that's right. Um, I'm a Luton Town supporter. So uh, yeah, pretty much lower leagues. Basically, since the formation of the Premier League, we've not been in it. <laughs> so uh, yeah, we've been we've been right down to non-league and back up to the championship. So uh, yeah, good view across the whole spectrum of the league. Fantastic. So I've been there, got the t-shirt as far as supporting football. Um, if you had to pick out one team as your Premier League team, who would it be, Reg? Um, I'm split. I have split loyalties between Liverpool and Newcastle. <laughs> All right. And why Newcastle? I'm curious now. Is that because of because of me and Zach or is that for other reasons? Um, mainly from being friends with you over the years. Um, yeah. And Alan Shearer was always a big fan of his. So yeah, just sort of gravitated towards them for a while nice and what was the uh, what was the draw to liverpool specifically um well liverpool was um i went and lived in luxembourg for four years um and back in those days when luton were in the old division one um you couldn't really follow football abroad there was no internet so i picked a team i could watch on sky and it just happened to be liverpool at the time Fantastic. All right. I actually, I, I think I knew that story, but forgot that story as well, that you had a little bit of an allegiance to the Reds at Anfield there. So I'm really excited for today. It should be great. Rich has been a guest on the pod for a small segment in the past, uh, but hasn't really come on to host, um, I think, in the past. So we're really excited. False Nines, episode 85. Let's go through a quick rundown of what we will cover today, um, and then we'll get right into it. So uh, we're here about match day 27-28, depending on which team you support in the Premier League. Uh, Man City, 28 games played, along with another few other people. And then Everton um, and Arsenal on 25 games. So still a little bit of a disparity between the amount of games played with the COVID break in January. Uh, but we're getting close to the final 10 games of the season here. Very, very exciting times. Today, we're going to be starting off, as we always do, with EPL trivia. Um, I'll go through, give you a clue midway through the pod, as well as at the end of the pod and then let Rich have a try at answering that question. We've got some great talking points today from the Premier League. After a short commercial break, we're gonna be doing a spotlight on Luton. So Rich is gonna tell us all about that fantastic team that he has supported for a long time. And don't worry, Rich, I'm also a Luton fan, just as you are a Newcastle one. <laughs> Always check out for their results. Happy to see their league placement, which you'll get into here in a bit. We'll wrap up as we always do with 10 and 90, and then we will finish with EPL trivia for the pod. All right, ready to get going, Rich? Yeah, I'm ready. All right, let's do it. So your EPL trivia question. I told you it was a tough one, and I stand by that statement. Which striker, now retired, has played for the most Premier League clubs? Have a think about it. No Interesting answer. one. So yeah, any, any immediate names coming to mind? Don't tell me, but any, any ones that you th you're thinking might be possibilities? 
Ah, it's hard to say. Premier League's been going a while now, so um, yeah, 19... there's quite a few names in the hat. Yeah, 1992. So we're, we're coming up on oh, this is the 30th year, I guess, of uh, yeah of the Premier League coming up this year. So that's very very exciting. So uh, I think we're both old enough to have been around from the majority of those uh, those seasons. So it's uh, pretty pretty good in terms of our knowledge levels on those. All right, so let's get cracking with some stories and questions from the past two weeks. Um, we have three for you today. We'll kick off with Newcastle, though. Um, as you're a Newcastle fan as well, Rich, as we've just discovered, this one should be very easy for you to answer. Essentially, Newcastle has gone eight games unbeaten in the Premier League right now. We're in fantastic form. Eddie Howe has certainly turned this team around from where we were in October really realistically where we were in December with the only team Newcastle now um, that is undefeated in the Premier League since Christmas. Um, and we've gone eight games unbeaten and five out of our last six have been victories. So Rich, I'll ask you this. To what do you think we credit this turnaround in fortunes for Newcastle? Is it as simple as pointing out the manager or do you think there's a little bit more to it? I think you have to look um, from top to bottom, really. Um, Ashley leaving, um, new manager. It's what the clubs needed. The fan base has needed it. I think the players probably needed it. A complete refresh from top to bottom. Um, it's given everyone a lift. You've then got a Eddie Howe, good young, still young manager, really, um, who has brought new ideas um, and has given the players some confidence. And one win gets, can soon turn into two or three. Um, that added with some new signings, it's always going to give you some strength to, to progress. Yeah, I think that the backing that Newcastle had in the January transfer window can't go unmentioned, right? I think across all of Europe, Newcastle had the most investment in incoming transfers in, in, in the Premier League and in the entirety of Europe. So but it was needed, right? I think, you know, we were in big trouble had we not done that. And I think there was a lot of criticism that came Newcastle's way from, I think, more casual fans that they'd expected these marquee signings to come in. And it didn't really pan out that way. You know, I think, you know, that the sexiest signing on paper was probably Bruno Guimaraes from, from Lyon because of the prestige that he has, Brazilian international, playing for Lyon in the Champions League, you know, so he's been... He's been a player that has come in and, you know, hasn't started many games. I think what was interesting to me was that the core of the signings that we got were players with Premier League experience. Um, Kieran Trippier probably being the, the pick of those, but some really good, solid Premier League established players like Trippier, um, like the likes of Dan Byrne coming in, Matt Target coming in, um, and just players that we know can cut it in the Premier League. Do, do you see that as being a a good plan in terms of where the club was at the time, or had you hoped to see some, you know, bigger names potentially come in and sign for the club in January? No, I think, I think if you had big names come into that, into Newcastle in the position they were in, you'd have been getting the wrong kind of players. You'd have been getting people coming for the money, not really the challenge. Newcastle were in deep trouble at the time. And what, big names in football want to go into that sort of situation. Their big names want to sign for teams competing at the top. They're going for Europe. They're going for European competitions. I think getting people in who have got one Premier League experience is vital, but also people that will gel into the squad. If you bring in marquee signings, but you've still got players playing for you who are on 
lower wages, slightly lower skilled, you'll get a divide in the squad. You'll upset the dressing room. I think he's been very shrewd with who he's brought in um, and has got a good balanced squad now. So, yeah, I think he's taken the right the right path there. Yeah, I absolutely agree with you. I think there's a time and a place for those sexy signings, so to speak. And I think what they needed was people that were willing to come in, roll their sleeves up, get in the weeds with Newcastle and really kind of try and dig them out of the, the hole that they were in. Um, I, I think that's been incredible too, just the, the impact that some of these players have had, especially on the left side of defense, Dan Byrne coming in and Matt Target, who I'm, I'm amazed that Villa let go out on loan. Right? We, we were in the market for Luca Dina before he went to Villa and that signing was really what prompted us to get Matt Target. I couldn't be happier with that. I think Dina fits the system at Villa really, really well. And Matt Target is the best left back that I've seen play for Newcastle in probably the last five to 10 years. I can't, I can't mm. think of a better one that's been in there. I feel like we've had makeshift left backs for many, many seasons uh, in the recent past. So um, let, let's kind of skip on a little bit. The, the form has been fantastic. And what's been surprising for me, Rich, has been the, the fact that we've been able to do this without some of our top players, right? Kieran Trippier out for several months with a metatarsal injury. Um, Alan St. Maximin missing a few games due to a muscle injury. And then obviously the permanent sick note that is Callum Wilson. Amazing <laughs> when he's fit, not fit often enough. I think, you know, yeah. um, that that's going to be an area where we need to strengthen again in the summer because of that reason. But I want to dig specifically on Alan St. Maximin here. What's been very obvious to me during this run of form is that Eddie Howe doesn't want to mess with a winning formula. He's wanted to keep a team that's in form. He's wanted to stick with those players and show faith in them, given that they are producing and giving them results. And that the way he's been able to do that is because Newcastle aren't in any domestic cups. They're not in Europe. They um, haven't really had to have any fixture congestion because of that. And therefore, they're typically playing one game a week. Newcastle now have coming up some away fixtures, in fact, three away fixtures in the space of 12 days. Does Alan St. Maximin walk straight back into this team as a starter? Or do you think that he should kind of continue down the path that he how of picking the players that are winning him the games on the pitch? I think it's always hard to bring someone back in who's been out injured straight into the lineup, especially when you've already got a uh, a formula that's proved successful, I'd bring him back in on the bench as probably most managers would. And you give him half an hour, 20 minutes at the end of a game, ease him back in. It will keep the squad happy. Certainly when you've got a team that's successful, you don't want those players being upset that they're getting dropped just because someone's someone else has come back fit. Yeah. Great points. I think by nature of the fixture congestion, though, I think we're going to have to shuffle the pack a little bit. But I agree with you that he probably shouldn't come straight back in and start in the team. What's your take as a as kind of an out, an outside perspective on Alan St. Maximin? You've probably watched him play, right? Undoubtedly a huge talent. Um, but one of those players that I think is very much like Hatem Ben Arfa back in the day. So much talent on his day, but very frustrating on other days. And does he have enough of those successful days to really kind of warrant him being considered a top player? Still no caps for France, hasn't started for his national team yet, which is astounding when you think of the prestige that he has in England. What do you think of ASM as a, an, from an outside perspective? I think he's, he's one of those players that 
on his day can change a game. But when you've been in a relegation battle and you've been fighting, is he one of those players that's going to dig dig deep? I think he's the sort of player that in a successful side will shine. But when you need graft and commitment, and it's not always about creativity, he's maybe not always the best person to have. Yes, you want a genius in your side like that, because I think, as we've said, he's frustratingly brilliant one day, but not great the next. But on those days, he'll produce a bit of magic that the opposition are just not ready for. Right. Yeah, he really does. And, and that's the thing is that he's he's incredible to watch. Um, so you kind of have to take the good with the bad sometimes when you have a player like that, right? He's going to take on players more often than not. And sometimes it's not going to work out, but you have to be okay with that happening if you want the kind of really the good things to happen as far as him succeeding when trying to take on those players. Yeah, and when you see those players of quality, especially wingers and attacking players, look at Ronaldo in his early days. He was so frustrating at Man United because he had tried tricks and they wouldn't come off. But if they don't try, they'll never improve. So you need to almost let them fail in order for them to succeed in the long run. Yeah, it's it's less about that for me. It's been interesting watching him recently. I don't mind when he tries to take on players and, and fails because they, a lot of teams have been starting to put two players on him and that's been very successful in terms of being able to kind of box him out a little bit. What bothers me is when he doesn't track back. What bothers me is some of the misplaced passes, the end product that he has sometimes. He's chipped in with a few goals this season. Um, but I hope that Eddie Howe continues to work with that aspect of his game. I want to see some of those successful kind of final balls um, I remember really vividly um, a moment with St. Maximin in the last game for Newcastle against Brighton, where he could have pulled the ball back to Chris Wood. And you've got Chris Wood screaming, pointing down at his feet, like, pass it to me. I'm going to, it's a tap in. Didn't do it, obviously, because he went and took it on by himself, but it was at the end of a long run. So it's hard to begrudge him necessarily taking a chance on that, but he's got to lift his head up sometimes and pick out that pass. I think that's what's going to separate him from being good and being great. Yeah, definitely. He's players in those positions you need them to be able to produce the magic and do the simple stuff yeah exactly yeah all right well um last couple points on newcastle here do you think newcastle fans have been kind of recently saying hey we feel like we're on the other side of this we're looking up the table versus looking down are they celebrating a bit too early as far as saying newcastle might be safe i personally don't share that same opinion i think we've still got to graft a little bit but I'm curious as to what you think, looking at the table right now, Newcastle seven points ahead of the relegation zone, 18th place Burnley, and then five points um, behind Crystal Palace, who are 10th. So five points from top 10, seven points from the relegation zone. Too early on 28 points to say that we're safe at this point? I mean, I'm one of those people that will never say you're safe until you're safe. But considering where Newcastle were, the form they're in, they're the, what, the form side in the Premier League almost. Yeah, I wouldn't be celebrating, but I'd certainly be looking upwards rather than over my shoulder. The teams that are below you at the moment are not showing any sign of form, picking up results that I think would threaten Newcastle. I think Newcastle have got enough now to stay up quite comfortably. Yeah, I, I hope so. I think, you know, there's enough winnable games left. We have a tough kind of stretch of games coming up here with some away fixtures. Chelsea on Sunday is going to be particularly hard. Southampton 
are very close to us in terms of the form table in the league. They've been playing very, very well until they got blown out against Villa this past weekend. And then, um, yeah, we've got those two games and then we also have Spurs coming up as well. So that's going to be a tough one. So, you know, I think, I think we've done well to capitalize on the winnable games when we had them against those teams in and around us, beating Brentford, beating Leeds, beating Everton, the three teams directly below us, all really, really big victories in terms of propelling us up the league and then beating Brighton last weekend to a place ahead of us. I, I agree that the like, I'd say I'm probably 75% confident that we'll stay up at this point. It's optimistic, yeah. optimistic. And then, and then kind of a, a loaded question just because it's at a big topic, but I want to hear just briefly your perspective on the takeover. Newcastle, obviously Mike Ashley for 10 plus years, really a horrible team to be a fan of, um, not fun to watch, disasters of coaches coming in other than Rafa Benitez and, you know, not, not a whole lot to celebrate. And then you know, in comes the PIF and they purchase Newcastle and Newcastle becomes the richest club in the world. What's your perspective on that? Looking at it, do you see it as a good thing or a bad thing for football? It's hard to say. I mean, you can look at the people involved in the takeover, but you can look at the owners of plenty of the other big clubs out there. None of them are great. They're all, they're all businessmen at the end of the day. Um, I think the main thing is, is they seem to have Newcastle's best interests at heart. They've, like you said before, they've not gone out and splashed the cash on marquee signings. They want to build the club up properly, um, which, yeah, it's good. You've got money behind you, but they don't just want to fritter it away on, on big players. Um, yeah, I, I don't think it's a bad thing. And considering how toxic Ashley was, he had to go. Anyone would have been better than, than him. Yeah, I agree. I agree. I think, you know, it was, it, it's so been so refreshing as a Newcastle fan to see Amanda Stavely and Meredad Godusi come in and the perspective, and although they're kind of minor in terms of the, the shareholding that they have and the investment that they have, they are really the face of the club now in terms of the ownership group that has come in, you know, the, the bulk of the money is coming from Saudi Arabia, but really the, the stewards of the club are, are seen to be Amanda and Meredad and they just, from top to bottom, what they're doing with the club, investing in the um, training facilities, in making sure that you know we have uh, local events to support and they're attending those, uh, making sure that the women's side of the game, Newcastle women's team is supported and that we build a, um, a youth setup that can have new players coming through. They're, they're really not just focusing on Newcastle's immediate success on the pitch. They're looking at the broader spectrum of things that need to happen there. And there are a lot of things that need to happen at Newcastle from the neglect of Ashley over the last 10 plus years. So I'm very excited. Um, I hope that the way that they're running the club will be seen as a positive thing by other fans, but I'm sure with this money will inevitably come some success and from there, there'll probably be some hate, just like there was for Manchester City over the, the course of the last five, yeah. 10 years. Um, and I'm okay with that because that means that we're going to be winning some trophies in the process. So, yeah, yep. you, you can't be successful without being hated. No, exactly. Yeah. Some, somebody's going to dislike you at that point. I'm hoping that Newcastle will end up being everybody's second favorite team again, just like they were again in the 90s. But I think a lot of that was to do with the fact that we came so close, but not quite, you know, uh, never, never quite got there. And they played great football and had some great characters around the club with Keegan and Shearer and, and people like that. Yeah, absolutely. David Ginola, Tino Aspria, some, some mm. incredible players back in the day. 
All right, so let's wrap on Newcastle then and um, talk about another team here who um, has been performing fairly well recently, um, but had a poor game at the weekend. Manchester United, I think the, the theme here I want to kind of get into is really just the state of the club today. It's, it's a club that has really underperformed since Alex Ferguson left it um, many moons ago now, it seems like. And I feel like they've, although they've had their successful moments, they've never quite managed to replicate those successes and be consistently pushing for the title as they were. I mean, when, in our formative years when we were teenagers, I mean, they were, they were doing it all the time. They were winning the Premier League left and right. So this weekend, actually, for me, was a great kind of visualization of that to see how far Manchester United's stock has fallen and Manchester City's has risen. You know, at one point, they were referred to as the noisy neighbors, Manchester City. Mm. And today they sit 22 points ahead of Manchester United in the league table. Um, that's quite a lot of noise. That's a lot of noise indeed. So um, the game over the weekend was very interesting. I'm not sure if you caught it, but um, great, great game. Started off um, very, very end to end. High press from Manchester United, which you'd expect from Ralph Rangnick. Um, they take the lead on a sloppy goal from Kevin De Bruyne. Great equalizer from Jaden Sancho, who I think is finally coming into some good form now. And then, of course, they give away another goal fairly instantaneously after that. Um, and it's 2-1 at half time, De Bruyne with two and Sancho with one. And then the capitulation after the break was remarkable for Manchester United. They just basically sat off them and let Manchester City do their thing. Two goals from Riyad Mahrez, comfortable in the end, a 4-1 victory. With that in mind, what do you think about Manchester United right now, Rich? What, when, I, when I say that to you and I think about them as a global force, you know, that they were once upon a time, where do you see them in terms of the hierarchy of world football right now? I, d- I don't think they're, they're anywhere near being ranked up there with the best at the moment. You look at the success other clubs have had over the last 10 years. You look at Juventus, Inter Milan, Barcelona, Real Madrid they are miles behind the teams like that at the moment. And domestically, they've, they've not achieved either. Um, in some ways, it's a shame. You know, in the 90s, when they were having all their success, everyone hated Man United, but that was because they were successful. Um, and they were always put up there as sort of like the club everyone wants to be. Now it's quite sad. No one wants to be them at the moment. Yeah, it's, it's absolutely true. And I think the, the thing as a Manchester United fan, as you're watching your team right now, that is probably hardest to take is you have so much talent in the dressing room. Like the players that you have, you know, David De Gea, I think one of the best goalkeepers in the Premier League. You've got Raphael Varane. Harry Maguire um, has done great things for England that he hasn't quite managed to replicate for Manchester United, but um, had a bit of a horror show on Sunday but in general has been a pretty consistent performer for them. And then you've got players like Bruno Fernandes and you have Cristiano Ronaldo, you have Paul Pogba, who's somewhat of an enigma like St. Maximin, maybe it's a French thing. Um, You've got these players from top to bottom that are so talented, yet they can't seem to figure out a way to make it click on the field. Why is that? I've, with big players come big egos. Um, you need a good manager to manage those egos. I think the stark contrast you see with Alex Ferguson's successful squad is he had a nucleus of players, the class of 92, who came up, they were Manchester United through and through. And you probably had, what, five or six players 
in the starting 11 who wanted to die for Manchester United. You don't see that now. You've got amazing talent there, but who's there that is Man United through and through? Who's got the passion of the club? There's no one there really fighting apart from maybe you could say Scott McTominay, who seems to have a little bit of desire. It just doesn't seem to be that with these big, talented players, but they're all imports and they haven't got Manchester United as a club as their best interests. Yeah, it's a great point. You know, there, there, there's some other players there that I think have come through the youth system. Marcus Rashford, probably um, towards the top of that list. Mason Greenwood as well, who came through the youth system. We all know about his recent mishaps um, and what's happened there. So he's, he's not playing currently. But yeah, you're right. You think back to the core of players. Uh, I'll never forget the Alan Hansen quote, you'll never win, any, win anything with kids. And didn't, mm. they, didn't they prove him wrong? Like, you know, some yeah. of the player, players back then, the Neville brothers, David Beckham, um, Nicky Butt, uh, Paul Scholes, Ryan Giggs, those sort of players. I mean, just yeah. phenomenal youth system that they had there, and that's not going well. That said, there, there is very much, um, you mentioned the egos, there is very much rumors of discord in the dressing room right now. Cristiano Ronaldo, hip flexor issue that was diagnosed just before the game. Instead of staying and supporting his teammates, very similar to what we we're talking about with Kieran Trippier earlier on and the, the signing that he's been and the leader that he's been, Ronaldo, 37 years old, is like, no, I'm good. Goes, flies home to Portugal, gets his treatment back there, spends some time with family and relatives back there. Meanwhile, his team on the field are struggling at the Etihad. Can we be a little bit critical of Cristiano Ronaldo there at 37 years old? Do we feel like, does he have a right to be frustrated and not want to stay there with the state of the club right now? Or do you feel like it's his duty to, as a leader, be there and supporting the lads? I mean, I think I think as a player in any team, if you're injured, you stay and support the club. But at the same time, a player these days is not allowed to leave without the manager's say so. So unless he has actually just stormed off without permission, then is that counter Rangnick giving him permission to go? Um, yeah, he does need to to knuckle down. He knew that Man United is not in the greatest of shapes when he went back there. So in some ways, I'd say suck it up and get on with the hard job. You know, he said he's not gone there just as a like a out of sentiment. He's gone there because he wanted to win things. Yep. Well, absolutely. he's not he's not going to get going to he's not going to win things by leaving the team. It doesn't send the right message. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I think I think he has a bit of a duty to the caliber of player he is, you know, certainly going to be one mentioned in the list of greatest players of all time, I think. Um, and, you know, to to step away there, I think, is a bit disappointing on my part. Um, maybe there's more to it that we don't know. Who knows? Um, there, there could be certainly more to the story than meets the eye. But again, I think that he has a bit of a duty there as a senior player to to make sure he's there supporting the rest of his teammates. Um, you mentioned the manager, Ralph Rangnick. Uh, he's coming for some flack, I'd say. Certainly, you probably are seeing that in the British media as well. Yeah. But he was never the long-term solve there. So, I mean, as much as you want to kind of aim criticism at his door, he's doing the best he can with a team that is, you know, really not united in the dressing room. Um, and that's translating to not united on, on the field. So, 
personally, I think that we're going to need somebody to come in and manage the club at the end of the season that is going to be able to corral some of those big egos and really kind of get them to bond together. Very similar to what Eddie Howe has done at Newcastle. Who would you say is a manager out there, available or not, that you think might be a good option for Manchester United, especially given they've got it wrong so many times in the recent past? Um, I don't think there are many out there that have got the experience to come in and manage these big egos and of such a big club where the expectations are high. You could maybe look at the Ancelotti's, um, Zidane maybe. It's hard to say this. There are some good managers out there, but I think it's been proven if you've got a club that's got deep-rooted issues, a good manager is not just the person who's going to be able to sort that out. They need to be able to cope with a board that are making demands and possibly signing players that the manager doesn't want. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think, I think you're, you're, you're completely right there to have somebody come in is going to be a mammoth task. I mean, because they've gotten it wrong so many times. Hmm. Think about the, managerial hires they've had since Alex Ferguson was there. They've tried everything. They've tried super experienced managers like Mourinho, like Van Hal. They've tried giving it to former players like Solskjaer. They've tried basically replicating Alex Ferguson and picking another Scott in David Moyes, who I maintain didn't get enough time at Manchester United. They just expected immediate success because of Fergie. Um, And they just haven't got it right. So for me, what's next is a talented young proven English manager. And I would say look no further than Graham Potter at Brighton. Um, Big jump for sure, going from Brighton to Manchester United, but he's established Brighton in the Premier League. And the brand of football they play, looking at the way Newcastle had to kind of play without the ball on Sunday, we've gone from 56% possession at West Ham to at home against Brighton, them having 68% possession. Brighton are a great football team. They will be absolutely fine. And although they've lost four on the bounce, I do think that Graham Potter is the sort of manager that, you know, if he had a bit more resources, he could bring the team together from a camaraderie. There's no problems of discord in the Brighton changing room. And I think, you know, he could probably get the best out of some of those big egos. Potter's a good shout. He's definitely a, a good manager. We saw that. Um, when he was managing abroad and what he did with that club in Europe. Um, he's come in and he's done a fantastic job with Brighton. Um, it's a good shout. Would he manage the egos as much? Obviously, he doesn't have those at Brighton that he's fighting against. And I think he's managed to instill a great team spirit there. But that would probably be quite a big recruitment task for him to to bring in the players that he thinks would fit into the a good competitive dressing room um, that's not fighting against themselves. I mean, you mentioned before they had David Moyes. He didn't get enough time. Look at what he's done with West Ham. Yeah, absolutely. They were, they were a club in, in turmoil. They were performing poorly, but he's gone in there and he's, well, look, they're, they're challenging for the top four. Yep. Um, is it worth giving, giving him another shout? Would he want the job again? I don't know. Yeah, I mean, it's it's an interesting one um, on the David Moyes front because you, uh, you're absolutely right. I think when he took over at West Ham, I don't think many West Ham fans were very excited about it. You know, no. he'd, really, he'd really not replicated. He'd done fine, but he'd not replicated the success that he had at Everton before mm-hmm. he went to Manchester United. So 
But now look at what he's done with West Ham. He made some big decisions. He got rid of marquee signings like Sebastian Allaire, brought in his own players, um, and he's turned the mentality around there. And, you know, they were a very aging team when he came in, and he's starting to kind of rebuild them in his mold and get some younger players in. Declan Rice is the heartbeat of that team, right? Mm -hmm. So um, uh, that's a good shout too, right? It It would be almost kind of going back to, really proved the doubters wrong. I don't think he'd get a lot of support from the crowd, from the Manchester United fans. And I think that would probably be a potential stumbling block. Look how Rafa Benitez worked out at Everton, for example. Um, but, but I think that, you know, at this stage in his career, he's a much better manager than, you know, he was in the past. He's got a lot more experience. And uh, I think he would be more, more capable at this stage in his career than he was when he took over at Manchester United the first time. And let's face it, he, like you said, he didn't get, a great warm reception from the West Ham fans. He's not a manager that traditionally you would get excited about, but maybe that's not what you want. You want a manager to go there and get on with the job, not people to be excited about him. Exactly. Yeah. Then that's the thing is um, even Eddie Howe, when, when Howe came in, I mean, the last thing he'd done was taken, um, taken Bournemouth down and everybody kept talking about that. And I, I would say there were some concerns on my part too, but you see how he grew because of the time he had out of the game and a student of the game that he is. I think, you know, Moise is, Moise is very similar in that respect. Big student of the game, wants to do well, wants to learn and be a better manager and better person. And, you know, I, I like that. It's a good shout. Yeah. All right, final talking point for today. Let's talk about Everton Football Club. Another club not in a great position from top to bottom, uh, just like Manchester United. Um, but I want to talk specifically, Rich, about Frank Lampard. Does he have what it takes to keep Everton up this season? And before you answer that, I want to talk a little bit about the current form. Most recent result, 5-0 at Spurs. Very, very worrying and concerning result. They um, Jordan Pickford, although I enjoyed it, had a 2.8 rating on FOTMOB for that game. Was a horror show from him. Uh, he's only got little arms. Uh, Everton, one win in nine. They've conceded three goals or more in nine different games. Nine out of their 25 games this season, they've conceded three or more goals. And then their record away from home is shocking. At home, they've played 12, won five, drawn one, and lost six. And away from home, they've played 13, won only one of those, drawn three, and lost nine of those. So, I mean, incredibly poor form right now for Everton. Um, one win thrown in there for Lampard since he started, but three losses on the bounce. Do you think he has what it takes as a manager to keep them up this season, Rich? I think as a manager, yes. Does he have the squad to do it is another thing. They, they look like a defeated bunch of players. Um, I'd like to think that given time, he would be able to turn that squad of players around. Has he got the time? Who knows? You know, there's there's only what three three teams below them at the moment, mm-hmm. and all right, they're they're not um, setting the world alight. But when you're conceding that many goals, and you're not putting them away at the other end, it doesn't look good for them, to be honest. No, it doesn't. You're absolutely right, and you know, I I, I agree that you know he's going to have to dig deep to get. Um, to get stuff out of these players because the form they're in is just, I think it's knocking their confidence. Yeah, and They need a couple wins on the bounce and I think they'll be okay, but they have a tough run in 
um, in the Premier League as well, Everton do. The good news for them is that, you know, they, they made some really good signings in the January transfer window, um, especially towards the end. Donny van der Beek came in on loan from Manchester United. And then surprisingly for me, a huge outlay of 40 million on Deli Alley, who I think might be one of the most overrated players in the Premier League, my personal opinion, nothing to back that up necessarily. Um, do you think it's fair to say that we haven't seen the best of them yet? Do you think there's more to come that might help drag Everton out of this mess that they're in? Well, I hope there's more to come from them because players like that, you know, we've seen what Deli Alley can do. He was rightly or wrongly valued at close to 100 million a couple of seasons ago and even now we're saying that 40 million is too much for him he's a player again low on confidence you know he, he wasn't getting game time at Spurs we know he's got the talent it just needs the right person the right atmosphere to get it out of him same with Donny van der Beek he was in a, an amazing Ajax side before he went to Man United but then never got game time. So these are players that are potentially very good, but low on confidence. I think they probably, it, can they do it this season? I don't think they can. I think those sorts of players probably need a preseason with a manager that has faith in them to restore that confidence to get them on the front foot again. So with that in mind, if you don't think that they're going to get more out of Van der Beek and Deli Alley, what do you think is the future of Everton this season? Do you think, you know, they're, they're one point above the relegation zone right now. They do have a game in hand on Burnley, but Burnley are in certainly better form than they are. Most people tipping Watford and Norwich to go down, but do you think Everton are at risk of being that third team? I think they are. I mean, as you said, they've got a tough run in and I, and I had a look at it before, before we got on this. Um, they've still got to play Wolves, Newcastle, West Ham, Man United, Palace, Liverpool, Chelsea, Leicester and Arsenal. I can't see them getting many points from those games. The only ones I can see them getting points from are Watford and Brentford. Um, and those are must-win games if they want to stand any chance of staying up. Yep. Because like you say, Burnley are starting to pick up the odd result. Um, and they've got a much easier run-in with the likes of Brentford, Norwich, Watford, Wolves, Villa. And I say Newcastle. They're bottom, they're bottom half sides. And I'd be worried if Burnley are hitting a little vein of form now and Everton don't turn it around with that run-in. Yeah, I can see Burnley staying up and Everton going down. Yeah, I mean, therein lies the difference, right? I mean, you look at the teams that are below Everton in the table. Sean Dyche, been there, done that. Staved off yeah. relegation so many times. Um, the same could be true of Roy Hodgson at Watford, although it wasn't with Watford, um, kept Crystal Palace in the Premier League when you know he didn't have quite as much backing. And then Dean Smith last year, keeping um, Villa in the Premier League, you know? Yeah. So there, there's all those managers below him have experience of keeping teams in the Premier League. So I, I don't think Norwich uh, will stay in the Premier League. They, <laughs> I think they're a dead set. Um, That's Dean fair. Smith would have yeah. to pull off some right magic to for them to stay up but yeah cer awesome. certainly yeah Watford and Burnley they have the potential to to turn form around Watford have got some talented players as much as it pains me to say it <laughs> they do they do and, and that uh, obviously for for listeners that aren't familiar Luton and Watford are bitter rivals um <laughs> think Newcastle and Sunderland think Everton Liverpool Man United Man City yeah um, that level of that level of rivalry but you're right they, they do have some talented players and you know, as much stick as the Watford board gets, I think Hodgson was a very, very astute 
managerial signing. I thought he was done. At his age in his 70s, I thought he was retired and staying retired. But, you know, if, if somebody's going to give you a chance of staying up, I think Hodgson would be it. Defensively, they've really managed to kind of like tighten it up at the back, I think, in the last few games. So, anyway, I digress. I think, uh, I think that Everson are in big trouble this season, and it remains to be seen if they can drag themselves out of it at this point. But if they do, they're going to need those big-name players to step up, to your point. The Dominic Calvert-Lewins, the Richarlison's, never mind the Deli Allies and the Donny van de Beek. They have enough talent on the field to yeah. come through that. Um, Alain in, in midfield, just great, great players that they have in that team. Um, and Jordan Pickford's a good keeper, much sick as we give him. Yeah. Like they, they, they should, shouldn't be conceding as many goals as they are right now. But they're also another club that are in probably a bit of trouble from the top down. Um, they had David Moyes for 11 years. And in the last six years, they've had eight managers. That includes interim managers. But you've had Koeman, Allardyce, Silva, Ancelotti, and Benitez. None of them are bad managers, and yet they've still not managed to make a success of Everton. So for me, it's not just down to Lampard. As good a manager as he could be, it's obvious other good managers have gone there and failed. Yeah, Ancelotti is the big one for me. I mean, I, I was yeah. so excited about him. I've said this to Zach on the pod before. For me, Ancelotti's top five managers in the world. Like, inc- yeah. incredible manager. And the fact that. And to came, be fair, he yeah. wasn't sacked. He left because Real Madrid, Real Madrid came begging. And if they yeah. come begging, you're going to go. Yeah. Um, and he got them playing some good football, actually, while he was there. And mm-hmm. he was actually starting to do some good work. But, you know, bigger clubs come along. But again, the others aren't bad managers. No, absolutely. Yeah. And I think that Lampard's got his work cut out for him. So remains to be seen 13 games left for Everton, a point above the relegation zone. They've dropped into it a couple of times in the live league table and then managed to ultimately survive ending the day in the bottom three, but we will see what this weekend brings. All right. Before we go to a quick commercial break, Rich, uh, I'm going to give you your first clue for EPL trivia. Hope you've had your thinking cap on here for the last few minutes. Which striker now retired as a reminder has played for the most Premier League clubs. Your first clue. He has played for eight different Premier League clubs with the majority of his appearances coming for Ipswich Town, although not all of those appearances for Ipswich were in the Premier League itself. It's interesting. That's brought out one player I had in my head. Okay. All right. Second clue to come at the end of the pod. Uh, We'll be right back after this quick commercial break. All right. Welcome back to the False Nines. Again, I've got Richard Smith, all the way from good old Blighty, from good old England, uh, joining us for the pod this week. And we are going to get right into a topic that is near and dear to his heart. Luton Town Football Club, the Mighty Hatters. I'm sure nobody knows what we're talking about, but it's Rich's team. They are in the championship right now, performing pretty well, which we'll get into here in a minute. But I will let Rich do the talking about his beloved Luton. And tell us a little bit more about kind of how he got into it. Um, some great memories for him, how they're faring, some of the players, and then what he thinks they will do this season. You ready to get into Luton, G? Yeah, definitely. All right, let's do it. Um, So first question for you, when and how did you become a Luton fan? Uh, Luton for me um, is born into me. Um, I'm not from there originally, but my family are. And yeah, it's one of those things that are passed down through the family my granddad was born in Luton lived in Luton grew up supporting them 
Um, my dad grew up there. My mum grew up there. Um, so yeah, it's it's born into the family. I didn't have a choice. <laughs> <laughs> so would you say that if you and Leanne have kids in the future, would you say that they are going to be Luton fans and they do not get a decision in that? Oh, definitely, because the other alternative is Spurs, and no one wants to be a Spurs fan. That is a great, great point. Leanne, I hope you listen to this back. This is fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what, what's your kind of main memory of Luton as a fan? It, it, could be a, it could be something like, a, you know, I know they've won trophies in the past. It could be something like that. Or it could even be just something as simple as, you know, time spent with your, with your granddad or your dad wa- watching them. What, what's the biggest thing that stands out for you as a Luton fan? I mean, our, our greatest achievement was winning the, the League Cup, which was, what is it now? the Carabao Cup Mm -hmm. so the equivalent of that back in 88 um obviously I was quite young then I didn't get to see it my dad went went to watch it um which is probably our biggest achievement and even watching that back sends shivers down my spine even though I was only four um (laughs) but yeah now the one that I've actually been at was in 2009 we won the EFL trophy um which at the time was known as the Johnston Paint Trophy, mm-hmm. um, which for the, those listeners that don't know, um, it's for clubs from League One, League Two, and the first level of the conference, um, which is non-league. So it doesn't include premiership teams or championship teams. Um, that year, we, were, we had a lot of points deducted for mismanagement, and we were... I think we had minus 40 points at the start of the season, something ridiculous like that. Um, and we were bottom going into uh, non-league football. Um, somehow we got to the, the final um, and we were playing Scunthorpe, who at the time um, were winning promotion up to the championship. Oh, wow. So we couldn't have been any further apart in that competition um, with regards to league places. Um, and we went to we went to Wembley, and although they were deemed the bigger club at the time, we took 40,000 fans with us. Um, and I think they maybe took about 18,000, mm-hmm. mm-hmm. um, which made the stadium look quite interesting because it was divided straight down the middle. Mm-hmm. So our half was full to the rafters and they had about one tier full. <laughs> um, and it was a great game of football. Um, it was 2-2 after full time, went to extra time, and we won it 3-2 with Claude Napka, um, who was sort of a, a wing back, scored a brilliant goal, um, was sort of one-on-one with the keeper um, and lobbed the keeper from about 20 yards out. Um, you should definitely look it up. It's, uh, it's, a, it's a great, the highlights are fantastic. So, uh, yeah, that I went there with my dad and, you know, we were celebrating best time, really. Yeah, oh, that's fantastic. I mean, I can only imagine what, what, that would, what that would feel like being there with family, being able to see your team win a trophy. And, and for yeah. listeners that aren't familiar with the Johnson's Paint Trophy, it's basically a competition that Sunderland get to participate in every season and Newcastle <laughs> do not. So uh, slight, slight dig at the league one, the league one sides there. So, um, but yeah, that, that's, that's a great story. And I will, I will check out the highlights of that. I don't think I've ever actually watched that. I have watched the 88 um, Carabao cup, whatever it was called back then, the league cup win um, yeah. for Luton. That was really cool to watch back, but I haven't seen the Johnson's pain highlights. So um, 
fast forward to 2022, um, Luton obviously um, out of all of the um, issues that they've had with points deductions, now a great, great side of their own accord. And in the championship, how are they doing this season, Jake? We're, we're overreaching, really. Um, we are, we've just gone into the playoffs. We're in sixth. Um, we beat Coventry last night. Um, it's worth saying that the teams all around the playoffs in the championship at the moment, it's very tight. At the moment, you could look from anyone from about 11th up to third being still in contention for playoffs. Um, but with our budget, we are probably one of the smallest clubs in the, in the division. Um, so to be up there in sixth with a load of ex-premiership teams, the likes of West Brom, Sheffield United, Fulham, Blackburn, there are some big, big clubs there. And we're definitely, I'm not going to say punching above our weight because we're there on merit. Um, but we're certainly doing well considering our resources yeah absolutely i mean to that point given that you have a little bit less resources i'm sure that there are many players playing for luton that the casual listener probably has not heard of who are who are some of those that we might not have heard of that we should be excited about were luton to go up and we'd be able to see them in the premier league every week um there's definitely one player at the moment he was a, a new signing last season um elijah adebayo we signed him from Warsaw, who are down in League Two. Oh, he scored um, last night, right? He scored against. Uh, he did. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He has got 14 goals so far this season. Mm. Um, he was certainly raw when we took him on. He had good talent. He's he's fast. He's fast and he's big. Um, which, as we've seen with some of the strikers in the Premier League, is a, a fantastic recipe. Um, and actually, I think during the January transfer window, Newcastle were actually scouting him hmm, um, as a potential signing. Um, we're obviously, we don't need to sell. So I don't know how interested they became, but he's definitely one to look out for. He's still only 23. He's got a hell of a lot of potential. Um, and I, I'd say, even if we didn't go up to the premiership, having a couple more seasons in the championship would turn him into a premier league player. Awesome. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've seen, I've seen him scoring several goals for Luton as I've been watching their results and hadn't, didn't really know a lot about him or where he came from. Mm. So, um, but it looks like a, a real talent. And obviously if, if Newcastle with the backing that they have, were in the market for him and asking around for him in January, I'm sure that yeah, he's going to be a incredible talent. How, how old is he? Is he, um... I think he's 23. Okay. So plenty of career ahead of him then. Yeah. He's yeah. just a, he's just coming into his prime and he's, he's learning a lot. We have um, some good players up front, experienced players who he's now learning the game from. So that will put him in good stead over the next couple of years. Yeah. We, you have a, you have a Welsh international there as well at Luton, right? Uh, we did. Who was who that you thinking of? Um, I was thinking of, oh, geez. Maybe Joe I was thinking Morrell? of. Yeah. Yeah, we sold him in the summer. Um, he sort of had a bit of a clash with the manager. Um, definitely had potential, but I think he he didn't quite fit in with the team, I think. Why was that? I'm curious now, because I think Morel has had some great games, obviously, playing internationally for, um, yeah. for Wales. Yeah, and, and, and I think part of that might have been 
the issue. He was, you know, he's an international and he played well for Wales. But in some games for us, he'd go missing. And, you know, we're a club that can't afford to have players go missing during games. And, you know, I think the manager pretty much told him, pull your socks up. Um, and I don't think he liked it because he he knew that he could perform at international stage and he did, but he wasn't doing it for us. And I think that clash with the manager, even though our manager is Welsh, um, <laughs> it, it didn't go down well. Um, and so I believe he went off to Bristol City or somewhere like that. Okay. Yeah, I was just looking it up while you were talking. Tom Lockyer was the player I was thinking of as well. Ah, okay. Yeah. Um, Centre back. He's uh, He's been a great acquisition. He's only been with us a season or so um he's he's been phenomenal for us at the back yeah and reese norrington davis was there for a while correct he was we had him on loan um uh, he was then i think he was on loan from villa possibly yeah um he was then recalled and went to sheffield united i believe he's at now yeah yeah good, um, and seems to be and seems to be doing well there so uh yeah, good luck to him. Yeah, wing back positions I think are a strength for for Wales right now. With uh, between Nico Williams and Reese Norrington Davis, I think we've got some really good talented players. Um, but I digress. Um, Luton Town doing doing very well. So with, with that in mind, realistic expectations um, for the end of the season? I mean, I don't think it's unrealistic to say we you know we're in contention for the playoff places. Um, it's certainly more than what we expected at the start of the season. Um, our goal with our budget is always survival. Um, we've, we've, we can't get relegated now. Oh, I believe there's one club that might catch us on goal difference if we were to lose <laughs> every game. So realistically now we are not going down. Um, Safer than Newcastle. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and the good thing is, is I mean, we're not playing well at the moment and yet we're still picking up results, which, hmm. you know, as any football fan knows, it's a great thing because if you can then turn it on, then the sky's the limit. Um, do, would I want us to get promoted? Uh, it's a tough one. We definitely need the money, the massive payday that would be. We're trying to build a new stadium. We're trying mm -hmm. to invest in our academy. So would you take a season of promotion and take the money knowing you get relegated straight away? For the financial benefit, maybe, but you know, it would be a tough watch for a season, that's for sure. <laughs> As Norwich fans can attest to. Well, <laughs> well, um, they're certainly my second team when I look down at the championship. I'm usually looking out for Swansea, Cardiff, and Luton. Those are my three teams that I'm typically looking out for. So long may it continue that you continue to overachieve and um wish you the best of luck for the remainder of the season. Here's hoping you sneak into the playoffs. Cheers. Yeah, I look forward to it. All right. Um, our next section, as always, 10 in 90. Um, during our commercial break, we took a moment and we discussed that, Rich, you're going to go first this time. You're going to ask me your five questions here. Um, and I'm curious, do you have a theme this time? Um, it's not quite a theme, but three of them are to do with Newcastle. So All I've right. given you a, a little bit of a might be easy it might not be it could oh, be Lord. embarrassing for you we'll see let's hope i don't disappoint <laughs> <laughs> all right go ahead sir okay so first one if you take the top 10 newcastle goal scorers and add all of their goals together what is the total all time or this season all time all time all time top Holy 10 shit i'd be i'm i'm throwing <laughs> shit, shit at the wall here this is not good um well shira's got 260 
Um, know that one at least. Uh, <laughs> all right, top 10 then, given he's got 260 and he's the kind of pinnacle of it. I'll just go for an even thousand. Oh, no, you're quite a way off. Go on. Do you want, a, do you want another guess? Uh, it's probably lower than that then. Uh, Let's go 700. Oh, no, you're going the wrong way. It's Have I gone the wrong one, way? Okay. 1,366. One I wasn't that far off. Come on. <laughs> Mo most of, apart from, I think, two or three, most of them have scored about 100. Okay, gotcha. So then, yeah, Jackie Milburn, obviously, up there as well. Yeah. Yeah, Mickey Quinn, probably. Um, but, yeah, not recently. Not not a lot of recent recent players have, have chipped in with a ton of goals. So. No, and, and that brings me on to my second one, actually. Ooh. which is who is the current highest goal scorer at Newcastle and with how many goals? Current goal scorer, meaning currently on the books. Currently on the books, yeah. Hmm. That one's tough. My immediate knee-jerk reaction was going to be John Joe Shelby. No. He is a striker. I'll give you that much. He's not. He's a midfielder. <laughs> 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 he can strike the ball well but that's the thing is that i mean for so many seasons we, we could we couldn't even find a 10 goal goal scorer so are you saying that currently on the books but all of his goals were at newcastle or are you saying premier league goals so like callum also would be a great shout because he's most of his were at bournemouth though no no i'm i'm talking how many goals this player has for newcastle okay got it or while he's been on the books for Newcastle. That's a bit of a hint. He may have been out on loan. And then I guess I go Dwight Gale. Yeah. Yeah. That would be that would be the second person. I mean, not Premier League goals, right? Because obviously a lot of those were in the championship too. Uh yeah. They would have been, I suppose, for, yeah. for West Brom. Yeah. That's kind yeah, of where, where I was going with, with Shelby, because he has barely made an appearance for Newcastle in the Premier League, Dwight Gale. But yeah, 34 goals. Yeah, good for him. Yeah, I think he'll be on his way in the summer and I will wish him well. I'm glad we signed yeah. him to a, to a new contract in the summer. <laughs> <laughs> right, my third question um, is a little, added a bit of geography into this. Okay. Um, so the capacity of St. James's Park is almost equal to what country's population? <laughs> well, that's 52,000 and some change. Um, 305. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Ooh. I guess I'm guessing small countries here. Let's go with Liechtenstein. Oh, yeah. No, no. no? <laughs> no. <laughs> Geographically or way off. <laughs> okay. So is the, the country a European country or is it no. in, in the world? Okay. Got it. It's, it's in uh, the Western Hemisphere. So give me the continent. Well, it's, I'll, I'll give you this. It's the Caribbean. Okay. Got it. 52,000. It's not. I mean, I just came back from Turks and Caicos. Is it Turks and Caicos? No, it's not oh. Turks and Caicos. <laughs> I was inspired there for a Nice minute. try. But it, it is, it is two, two words like that. Oh, shit. So it's something and something? Yeah. I believe it's in the Caribbean. I hope so. <laughs> oh, God, you got me. Go on. It's in Kits and Nevis. Wow, that's crazy. With a population of 53,871. Where did you dig that one out from? That's a great question. Um, I just, it just came to me. I was like, oh, I've got to pick something to do with 
your stadium. Yeah. There you go. Actually, <laughs> and then the, they, they, yeah. always, they always say on big football games, you know, when Liechtenstein are playing, for example, they're like, oh, the whole population could fit inside the ground. So that's what <laughs> sort of made me go, well, what could fit inside St. James's Park? There you go. Not quite St. Kitts and Nevis, but very close. Yeah, well, a few people would have to stay behind. That's right. Maybe they stay in Shearer's Bar and they will have a few pints there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, number four. Um, this might be an easy one for you. Okay. Two teams hold the unwanted record of only winning one home game in the Premier League season. Who are they? Wow. Um, historically, one of the worst teams in Premier League history was Derby County. I'm going to go yep. with them. Yeah. Yeah. So that's one. Could it be the Mackhams? Would that make me so it happy? It is the Mackhams. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Love it. Love it. I thought you'd like that one. <laughs> I very much enjoyed it. Thank you. <laughs> and so for my last one, this season, only two teams have managed to score more than one goal in the first half against Chelsea. Who are they? Wow, that's a good question, and it's a tough one because Chelsea have a great defensive record. Now, this is league and cup competitions. Okay. Oh, Lord. Well, they don't concede many goals, Chelsea. So I was going to say it's probably it's it's definitely not Carabao Cup. It must be FA Cup then, because Chelsea went through and just played in the final. So I'm assuming they didn't concede a lot of goals in making it to the final. You're smirking though, so maybe they did. <laughs> I'm not saying anything. <laughs> did Luton score a couple of goals against Chelsea? We did. Yeah, <laughs> in the first half. <laughs> that's right. You lost three two, didn't you? Yeah. Yeah, that's right. I remember that one. Yeah. Okay. So Luton and other one was Premier League. I'm guessing. Yeah. Let's go, Man City. No, it was Liverpool. It was Liverpool. There you go. 50-50 chance, right? This is the company we keep, G. <laughs> yeah, it's true. It's true. Liverpool and Luton, two of your teams there. I like it. Yeah. All right. Uh, some good questions there. Really like really like that St. Kitts and Nevis one. I'm not going to live that one now. I thought that one would throw you off. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I have a theme for you this week, G. It's going to be Ralph Rangnick. Um, okay. All your knowledge of all things Ralph Rangnick, I'm sure. That you... shouldn't take too long. <laughs> shouldn't take too long. You'll be you'll be having a guess at a lot of these, I'm sure. Yeah. Um, how old was Ralph Rangnick when he began his coaching career as a player coach? Um, I'll give you three years either way. As a player coach. Yeah. So he started coaching as a player coach. Um, and how old was he when he did so? Ah, oh, I'm gonna. Most players must be about, what, 34 when they do that? So I'm going to go with 34. Um, outside of the range. He was 25 years old. 25? Did yeah. he have injuries? or No, he just wasn't the best player and showed a lot of interest in coaching, um, the, right. ta the tactical side of the game. So um, his team at the time um, in Germany decided to kind of move him into a player coach role. And uh, the rest is history as far as his, his coaching career. So sticking with his playing career, it was very short-lived, as, as we've mentioned. <laughs> yeah. What position did he play as a player? He strikes me as a defensive person. Uh, and go with defensive midfield. That's exactly it. He was a defensive midfielder. Very well done. Yep. Certainly on the defensive side. This one will interest you. Um, which English university did Ralph Rangnick attend? Mm -hmm. 
is it a city university or is it one of these ones that like king's college that's not linked to a city specifically it's more of a kind of county based um county based so it's not a university of city it's university of county oh uh i have no idea this one's close to home g university of sussex is where ralph rangnick went to sussex how's that close to home anyway just close for you growing up right no, geographically, it's not that far away. It's about 150 miles halfway across <laughs> the country. That's me. That's like me. That's like me driving up to the mountains. Geez, <laughs> All right. Uh, question number four: What's the most prestigious trophy that Rangnick has won in his managerial career? And I'll give you a clue: He hasn't won much. <laughs> um. Now he was was he at Locomotive Moscow or Spartak Moscow before he came to Manchester United? Yeah, I think it was Locomotive. Um, but most of his career, including where he won this trophy, was actually spent managing German teams. Ah, um, it's got to be like the German Bundesliga two. He has won that. He has not won the Bundesliga but he's won the Bundesliga no. too. But I would say the most prestigious one, he's won a European trophy. I'll give you one more clue. Newcastle has won this trophy in the last... Intertoto Cup. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> in the year 2000, the Intertoto Cup for VFB Stuttgart. Um, Zach, if you're listening, uh, can never remember the name of that trophy that we've won. He always calls it like the Inerto Cup or something like that. Always makes it's me chuckle. Pretty in that. <laughs> it's, it's pretty It's pretty meaningless. So uh, yeah. th- th- there's an infamous picture, I think, yesterday, in fact, of when Newcastle won it. It was on this kind of the mem- Facebook memories. Uh, and they had a picture of Scott Parker, who was the club captain at the time, holding the trophy and just with like no emotion on his face. Like, what the fuck is this? So <laughs> not- I would actually argue that. I was right with my first guess because the German second division is more prestigious than the Intertoto Cup. No, I'll give you that one. All right. Okay. I'll, <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll let you have it. <laughs> All right. Question five. Is Ralph Rangnick's win percentage greater than or less than 50% as a manager in his managerial career? Greater than or less than 50%? I'm going to say less than. It is less than. It's actually 40%, though, which is higher than I thought it was. And it's hmm. been 47.7% with Manchester United to date. So in any coaching job he's ever had, he's never had a lower than 40% managerial win percentage, which I actually thought was quite impressive. Yeah. I mean, if you're if you're winning 40% and you can draw another 20, 30%, you know, you're, you're onto a good good win rate there. Good luck. Tell yeah. points. Yeah, and that's across 11 managerial positions he's held in his managerial career. So, I mean, he's he's been pretty consistently doing the business there. So, all right, G, as always, we finish with a Welsh word for you. I asked you to get a pen. You're going to need it. Yeah. Uh, you got it? Ready? Yeah. Okay, I want you to pronounce this Welsh word. D-I-N. Yeah. B-Y-C-H. Yeah. And then there's a hyphen. Then there's a Y. Yeah. And there's another hyphen. Mm-hmm. P-Y-S. P-Y-S. G-O-D. And you are going to either know this or you're not going to know this, and it's going to be glorious if you don't know it. 
I'm going to go with Dunbuch y Puskid. <laughs> One more time. <laughs> Dunbuch y Puskid. That was fantastic. It's actually Dunbuch y Puskid. I wasn't far off. You were far off. You were far off. You were as far off as Sussex is from your house. <laughs> Which, according to you, is quite close. It's just that's, a trip to the mountains. That's fair. That's fair. <laughs> and what does that mean? What's the translation of Dinbuka Pascal? Uh, this is the glorious bit that you're going to love. It's a place, G. It's a place. I'll give you I that. figured it might be. Yeah. Um, yeah, I have no idea what that means. It's Tenby. No. Yeah. It's, it's a seaside town called Tenby for listeners that aren't familiar with it, that I'm sure you've been to. Uh, I don't think I have, actually. I've been, I've been close to it, but I don't think I've actually been there. You should check it out. It's, it's a really beautiful part of Wales. So, Dinbuch uh, Puskad, Tenby. We've embarrassed Rich with his Welsh pronunciation. That was always <laughs> the goal. Thank you for being a good sport. Oh, you're more than welcome. <laughs> All right. Did so I wrap- beat Zach? <laughs> oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, he, would, he wouldn't have had a clue. I wouldn't have even given him a three-part Welsh word like that. I mean, he's, he's just not going to do well with that, is he? <laughs> uh, okay, to wrap the pod today, um, EPL trivia, our second clue, and then we'll give you a stab at the answer here, Rich. Which striker now retired has played for the most Premier League clubs? We already told you there's eight different Premier League clubs he's played for, and also that his majority of appearances in his club career came for Ipswich Town, although not all in the Premier League. Second clue is he's represented England at under 21 level, but does not have any full senior caps. And his Premier League stats are 40 goals in 215 appearances. So he's most certainly someone you will have heard of. Mm. I think I have a, I have a guess. All right. Give it a shot. Is it Darren Bent? (gasps) It's not, but you've got his last name correct. Marcus Ben. <laughs> it's Marcus Ben. Oh! <laughs> it had to be one of the two. <laughs> uh, there you go. Yeah, Marcus Ben is the is the correct answer there. Oh, I'll give you that one. At least half a point because you got half the name correct. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, um, yeah, eight different Premier League clubs, including Ipswich, um, several others in there that never really, never really appeared at the you know at the pinnacle of clubs. I would say uh, relegation but, fodder. Yeah, kind of, kind yeah. of for those relegation threatened teams. So, but Marcus Bent is the, is the correct answer. Rich, it's been a pleasure having you on the pod. Any any shout outs you want to give before we wrap up here? Uh, no, all I want to say is, you know, good luck to Newcastle for the rest of the season. Um, really do hope you stay up and long may the success continue onwards and upwards. Yeah, let's hope we're, we're seeing Newcastle versus Luton at St. James's Park next season in the Premier League. In the Premier League, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. We yeah. made the, we made the joke during the pod earlier that uh, during the halfway point of the pod, it could actually be Luton in the Premier League and Newcastle in the Championship, and with those budgets, that would be kind of crazy. But <laughs> it'd be an interesting one. But yeah, thank you. Yeah, we we certainly appreciate it, and, and hope we stay up too. And uh, it would be great to to have the the Hathers come to St James's Park next season. Definitely, we'd love it. All right, Rich. Thanks for your time, and until next thank time, you. footy, footy.